Good morning. All right, if this is your very first time or if it is your first time in a while, I want you to know I'm so glad that you are here. Genuinely always happy to have new people here and happy to welcome back people that we have not seen in a while. Um, however, I must confess, this sermon was not exactly written for you. Um, this sermon is the continuation of the last two sermons that were preached here at Good News Church. And I do think <clears throat> that you can benefit from listening to these sermons out of order, but I just want you to know if anything in this sermon sounds or feels weird or incomplete or out of balance, like that's why. It's because I'm just picking up where we left off after the last two sermons, and I can't go back and cover everything we said in the past two weeks. However, I can review a little bit of it, and so I will do that. Part of the way I will do that is by reading the passage once again. So our passage is Romans chapter 12, verses four through eight. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 12, four through eight. Um, that's our passage, meaning two weeks ago when we started this series, that's the passage I read. Last week when we did part two, that's the passage I read. And here we are in part three, and I'm going to read it one more time. Romans 12, starting in verse four, this is what it says. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service, in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness." So in this passage, we have seen that God has gifted different people in different ways. He has distributed multiple and varied functions among his people, just like the human body is made up of multiple and varied parts with different functions. Verses six through eight um, give us, if you look, kind of look through the main nouns there, verses six through eight gives us a seven item list of spiritual gifts. And so we're gonna show that list at this time, okay? Prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and showing mercy. On the first week of this series, I told you that over the next couple of weeks after that sermon, we would cover these seven gifts. Like what do these words mean? What do they look like in regular life? And I said to you in that sermon, I think it was, um, well, first of all, the number seven doesn't really split in half very well for sermon purposes. So I said we were going to cover three of them on one of, on, the, on one of the weeks, and then we were going to cover four of them on the other week. So that was the next two weeks, today being the second of those two weeks. So last week, we covered the three gifts that we called the speaking gifts last week. That was teaching, exhortation, and prophecy. So these were the ones that we focused on, and we put these three together because we thought there was something they all had in common. These three things are all things you do with your mouth. They're all things you do with your words. So we covered these three at the same time with the idea that we would then cover these four the next week, which is today. Okay, so today our goal is to cover the four non-speaking gifts on this list. They are serving, giving, leading, and showing mercy. These gifts all seem to be something that you do rather than about something that you say. So these behind me, these are the four Christian functions that we will be discussing today, and I'm gonna go ahead and begin by defining them for you. So let's take them one at a time, starting with the word serving. The word service or the word serving, when you find it in the Bible, it, um, at least in a lot of these cases, it comes, it's from a particular Greek word, um, diakonia, 
Okay, the, word, the Greek word diakonia, which sometimes gets translated into words like serving and service, um, at least the root word. Diakonia is the word that we get the modern English word deacon from. So if you've ever heard about churches and they have deacons and the deacons are gonna take care of that, that's this, this word for serving, okay, diakonia. But it doesn't have to be a religious word. Like I don't think it was back then. Sometimes that word was used to mean like a waiter, someone who waited on a table and served food and drink. And sometimes it was just a word that was generally used to mean to serve, to minister, to give practical help, to execute the commands of another person. Like in the noun form, it can be translated either as into the word deacon or it can be translated into the word servant, okay? So servers are like practical helpers in the church. All right, number two is giving, okay? The next one is giving. Giving here refers to someone who distributes or someone who shares or someone who imparts something to someone else, just like it sounds, giving. Like there are times in the Bible where it's translated with slightly different words, like the one who imparts or the one who shares. Um, Leading is our third word here. And leading, if you go back, I guess, into the etymology of what it originally meant and you translate it really literally, it means one who stands before. That's what a leader is, one who stands before. It means someone who presides over something. It is a word that's used in the Bible to talk about, like it refers to managing or, or being in charge of a group of people. And then showing mercy is related to the ideas of demonstrating care and pity and particularly like helping someone who's suffering and they're having a difficult time and so you help them. And that's showing mercy. So now we've defined our terms. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to start off by reading to you a passage where all four of these gifts are all bundled together. There's a short story in the book of Acts where you see all of these things simultaneously. So I'm gonna read you that story this morning. Acts chapter six starting in verse one. We're gonna see all these. We're gonna see so many gifts in this one story. Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. It says, in those days, as the number of disciples, as the number of the disciples was multiplying, meaning this was a time where Christianity was growing and spreading. As the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So you have a problem here. The reason it talks about Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews is this would be people that were there in Jerusalem. The Hellenistic people were, this is kind of a cultural or ethnical, ethnic, ethnic slash cultural problem. The Hellenistic Jews were people who were, I think they were, they were Jewish, but they were Greek in the way that they did their culture. They spoke Greek. They were affected by Greek culture. The Hebraic Jews were the people who probably grew up in and around Israel and they did things like the Jewish way. And so you have widows in both groups. And apparently there's some problem of like favoritism, cultural favoritism based on um, these people and their lifestyles. And so the favoritism had to do with widows being overlooked during the daily distribution. So that little phrase, daily distribution, shows you that at that time, they had some sort of ministry, some sort of program where they made sure that widows got fed and taken care of. In this culture, uh, widows were people who were very vulnerable, I think, to things like homelessness and um, starvation and things like that. If your husband had died and if you didn't have kids that were gonna be able to take care of you, like, what were you gonna do? And so the church decided we need to make sure that these people who no one else is looking out for, we need to make sure they're cared for. And so there was a daily distribution. I don't know if it was food or if it was money, but there was money that was, or, or some, something was provided to give um, these widows a chance to be able to survive. So that's the daily distribution. So verse two. Then the 12 summoned the whole company. The 12, meaning Jesus' 12 apostles, summoned the whole company of the disciples, meaning the rest of the congregation, and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. 
So they kind of split ministry into two sections here. They talk about preaching about God and they're like, this is important. We got to keep preaching about God. But then they talk about this other ministry that needs to happen that is in my Bible translated financial matters. Um, Some Bibles translate it uh, serving at tables, okay? And it's because the word serving that we talked about earlier, that diakonia word is found in here. It's serving at a table. And the word table back then sometimes was used to refer to the place where food happened and sometimes the place where money was transacted. So I guess it's hard to tell whether this is supposed to be translated as a money thing or as a food thing because I guess I would say the reason it's hard to know is because I don't know if they were giving the widows food or if they were giving them money. But however you translate it, clearly there's, a, there's two ministries being talked about here. There's the thing we gotta make sure we do, we gotta preach about Jesus, but then there's this other thing that needs to be done. The widows need to be taken care of, okay? So what are we gonna do? So verse three, they come up with an idea. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of a good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. They take that which was like Christian ministry at the time and they split it into two departments, right? We need, 12 of us are gonna keep preaching about God and seven of you are gonna make sure that the widows get taken care of. Verse five, the proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So I want you to see in this passage is those who are gifted with speaking roles in the church, in this passage, they are delegating a job of practical service to another group of people. Those people were supposed to lead or manage a system of distribution, giving money or food to this suffering, vulnerable group of people. And and the purpose was to show them mercy. Now, did you catch all that? Because I chose my words very carefully. Okay, in case you didn't catch it, I'm gonna reread that sentence I just said, and I'm gonna point to the giftings so that you get it, okay? What I just said was in Acts chapter six, verses one through six, those who are gifted with speaking roles in the church are delegating a job of practical service to another group of people. Those people were supposed to lead, manage a system of distribution, giving food or money away to a suffering group of people as a way of showing mercy. Do you see it now? All, like the, the, many of the gifts, or if not all of the gifts of Romans chapter 12 are all referenced in this one passage, right? Most of the Roman 12 gifts are all found in this one story. How cool is that? Okay, just me in the first service. That's fine. Um, uh, so when you look at this story in Acts chapter six, there are some Christian teachers that believe that this particular story where they said, you guys take care of the widows, we're gonna preach the word of God, that this was the beginning of the role of elders and deacons in the Christian church. Um, And when I look at that, I go, I have no problem with that. That seems to be correct. This idea of these leaders who are the teachers and the preachers and these people who are the leaders who are serving and and caring for those that are in need, like it does seem like that separation happened in that story. And so I have no problem with saying, yep, that was probably the beginning of elders and deacons in the Christian church. However, I do think that it is a problem to take that, which I think is true, and then uh, sort of force it onto Romans chapter 12 in such a way that you end up believing that Romans chapter 12 is just talking about two groups of people. Um, but it, that happens. Like that, that Romans chapter 12 is just teaching us about the pastors and the servers, right? There's just two, t- there's the elders and the deacons. That's what Romans 12 is about. Um, there are Christians who do that. If you, if you read books on this, you will notice this passage historically has been taught that way. 
But here's the thing. Even if it's true that you can define church roles and church ministry into two categories like that, like elders and deacons, which, by the way, I believe you can do that. That's not the precise point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 12. Okay? He's saying something more complicated than that. All right? How do you know? How do you know he's not just talking about two types of Christians or two types of ministry? The way I know is the sentences that came just before the list of gifts. I will remind you of them in case you don't remember. Just before the list of gifts, these were the words. Okay? Verse, uh, Romans 12, verse 4. Now, as we have, what's the word? Many, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ. There's no way you'd say that if you're prepping the people that you're about to say there are two types of Christians. There are two types of ministry. No, because there aren't just two body parts, right? He's trying to say something more than that. And so while I believe there definitely can be overlap with these gifts, as there obviously is in Acts chapter six, um, I also believe that not all givers are leaders, not all leaders are showers of mercy, not all servers are givers, Are you following that? So for this sermon, we're going to go back and treat each of these gifts separately. We're not going to just say elder stuff, deacon stuff. That's what it is. And we're going to look at these individually. And so my plan is to go through each one of these gifts, go to a Bible passage that uses that word or uses that idea and illustrate what the gift looks like, and then give you some applications as we go along. I will not do like last week where I saved all the applications for the end, okay? We will just sprinkle them in all along the sermon as we go, okay? So here we go. Let's start with the first one serving. As we're talking about serving and what it means, I want to go to Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to read to you verses 38 through 40. The story I'm about to read, and I'm not going to read the whole story, I'm just going to read part of it, but this story is kind of a medium famous story in the life of Jesus. And let me just go ahead and read it and talk about some of the words. Here it is, Luke 10, starting in verse 38. While they were traveling, he entered a village. Who's the he? Yeah, always try Jesus as your first guess, just in case. <laughs> Okay, while they were traveling, he, that's Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Now, this next verse is the one I want you to pay attention to. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Um. So my, I'm not, my plan is to not read and explain the moral of this story. I, I didn't even read the whole story. And I'm, my point is not to teach the moral of the story. Although in the past, I have read this whole story and taught the moral of this story. Um, but for today, I'm just bringing up the story to point out a few words and the way that they are used. Okay, and they're found in verse 40. I want you to notice it says, Martha was distracted by her many what? Tasks. Okay, now that little phrase right there, many tasks, it comes from that same word that serving comes from, the diakonia word, okay? That is... If you were translating this more literally, it's real, what it says in the original is Martha was distracted by much service. Martha was distracted by much service, but that sounds weird in English, so they translated it by her many tasks, right? Well, what, is it? what, was, what were her many tasks? What was Martha's much service in this case? Well, if you look at the story, Jesus had shown up and she's welcoming him into her home. And if you know much about Jesus, you may know this, whenever Jesus showed up, so did 12 other guys, right? 
So if you're there and you, you, can't, you can't just say, oh, Jesus, would you like to eat in my home? Like you say, Jesus, would you like to eat in my home? And suddenly 13 extra people are showing up. So I'm assuming her many tasks, her much service was probably having to find places for the 13 of them to sleep. Her dinner plans probably like went out the window. We got to kill a whole nother goat. Like there's 13 <laughs> extra people coming over for dinner tonight. She had many tasks. She had much service to do to pull this off. And then the word comes up again in the same sentence. So you got the, word, the service words here, but then it says, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Okay, there it is, the, the verb form of it. So the gift of service will often include completing tasks. Okay, the gift of service will include completing tasks. Some of you in this room are very task-oriented, Right? Some of you, you would much rather complete a task than like have to hang out with a human for a long time, right? Like some of you are more like task-oriented people. Some of you are particularly wired for the role of like, let's serve, let's get this stuff, let's do the stuff on the list, let's make sure it's all ready. Now, this is a role that will not lead to much power or glory here on this earth. It doesn't lead to a ton of recognition and fame, but it is an important function in the body of Christ, and it wasn't beneath Jesus to do it. Well, why would I be a, a servant? You know what I mean? Because Jesus Christ, the person who was the most important person who ever lived, it was not beneath him to be a servant. He washed his disciples' feet. He said that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so all Christians, all Christians are required to follow Jesus' example and be humble and serve others. However, some of you, I think, have been especially gifted in these areas. And so it's important for you to realize to serve. It's important also, I think, for you to realize that this is a support role that often goes unnoticed. And when it goes unnoticed, you might go, oh, why am I doing this for? And I think it's important for those of you who are wired in this way, we're gonna get the tasks done, but nobody noticed. I think it's important for you to realize God notices. God notices and... and that's the only person that matters, right? He notices and you, you do it for him. All right, number two is giving, okay? So we go back to our list, giving. Giving is the second gift in this four gift list. Um, for this one, I'm gonna take you to two passages. One is gonna be Luke chapter three. If you wanna turn there, you can. If not, I'm just gonna come up on the screen. I'm gonna read it to you. This passage is about John the Baptist, okay? That's who's being talked about here. Luke chapter three, starting in verse seven says, <clears throat> he then said to the crowds, who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, what a way to endear your audience, right? Like the people show up to be baptized by him and he's like, snakes, okay, who told you to run away from the wrath? All right, so he's, but he's saying there is this coming wrath and that's what the people were coming to be baptized for. So he says, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. Now, the people that were there are wondering, like, well, how do I do that? How do I demonstrate my repentance? And so they asked it. I'm going to skip to verse 10 where they ask it. Verse 10, they say, what then should we do? The crowds were asking him. And now look what he says back. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must, what's the word? Share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. That word that's translated, it's translated um, share here. Where is it? There it is. It's translated share here, but it's that same word that, that giving comes from in Romans chapter 12, right? In fact, you can tell that's what it means here. The one who has two shirts is supposed to do what with that shirt? He's supposed to give one of them away. I mean, it says share because it is sharing, but it's not literally like the person with two shirts, the sharing with another person does not involve both of them wearing the shirt at the same time together, right? In this case, sharing is giving away the shirt. That's the way the word is used. 
It's also used that way in Ephesians chapter four, verse 28. Let me read that one to you. Paul's teaching and he says, the thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. It's the same, it's the same word. It's, it's to give to people who need it. All Christians are expected to share. I want you to notice John the Baptist does not say, when they, when they said, how do we repent? He did not say, well, those of you who have the gift of giving and you have two shirts, you should give to the one who has none. He just said it to the crowd. And Paul does not say the thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands. And then if he has the gift of giving, he should share with anyone who has a need. No, right? All Christians are supposed to give. But I am aware that there are some of you who are going to take this part of the sermon more seriously than others, okay? And it may be that that this resonates with you because you have the gift of giving. So here's my exhortations about giving. I'm giving these exhortations to everyone, but I'm with the awareness. Some of you are gonna care about this and listen better than others. Here's my exhortation about giving. This is real simple, and yet it's really profound and helpful for you to know. There are three things that you can do with money. You need to know this. There are three things you can do with money once you get it, okay? I guess there's all sorts of ways to get money. You can earn it, you can steal it, whatever. But once you've got it, okay? Once you've got the money, there's three things you can do with it. You can spend it, you can save it, you can give it away. Everything falls into those three categories. Once you've acquired the money, the only things you can do is you can spend it, you can save it, you can give it away. Everything falls into those three groups. You might come up with other verbs. Yeah, well, what about investing? I think that comes, falls under the category of saving. What about gambling? I think that falls under the category of spending, okay? So whatever you do, that's what you either consume it, you save it, or you give it to somebody else. That's the only thing you can do with money, okay? So we start with that. Now, as Christians, <clears throat> we are supposed to be people who are free of the love of money. The Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 13. We're supposed to be free of the love of money. Money is not supposed to be an idol in our life that we worship, that it's like this is the ultimate thing we are living for. And so I've been taught this and I wanna pass this along to you. There are some people who do a lot of spending and some of the people who do a lot of spending, they have money as an idol in their life because they depend upon it for their satisfaction. There's some people who are spending, 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 and the reason that's happening is because ultimately money has become their their ultimate source of satisfaction. But here's the thing. There are some people who do a lot of saving, and money is an idol in their life because they depend upon it for their security. You would think that you could look at the spenders and go, oh, look at how they love money, and they're buying jet skis all the time. But you could have someone else who's cutting out coupons and pinching pennies and putting everything in the bank, and it could very well be that that person also has made an idol of money because they depend upon it as their ultimate security. And so I think in the midst of all that, it's important to remember there is a third thing that you can do with money. And that third thing often has the power to release the stranglehold that the love of money has on us with its promises of satisfaction and security. I don't want to oversell this. I'm aware that giving can also be corrupted. If giving is not done for the glory of God, and if it is not done motivated by the Holy Spirit, giving can become a source of self-righteousness. Right? So that someone could say, okay, well, what I do with my money doesn't bring me satisfaction. What I do with my money doesn't bring me security. What I do with my money brings me righteousness, okay? No, 
God is supposed to be our satisfaction. God is supposed to be our security. God is supposed to be our righteousness. Therefore, we must spend and save and give for him. And so I just wanted you to remember, when the hooks of satisfaction or security have gotten into you, just remember there is a third thing for you to do with money for Jesus. Okay, the next gift, leading. Okay, back in Romans chapter 12, the next one, it says leading with diligence. So this word leading, um, I'm gonna show you some other places it's found in the Bible. I'm gonna go to two. The first one is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, 4, it says, one who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If this seems like it's just part of a sentence, that's because it is, okay? It seems like, oh, it just seems like part of a little chunk of a paragraph out of context. It is. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have the qualifications for elders, okay? There are requirements for church leaders found in 1 Timothy 3, and they're listed. And I just lifted this one out of the list. So there's a list of this is what the elders are supposed to be like. And one of the things on the list is he is supposed to be one who manages his household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. I'm bringing this up not to talk about elder qualifications, but to point out a word. It's the word manages. That's the word, for, that's, the word that's leading over in Romans chapter 12. One who leads his own household, one who manages his own household, one who stands before his household and presides over his family. That's, that's the way the word's being used here. It's a, it's a person who's a manager. Um, it's also used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and in that case, it's translated lead. Let me show it to you. Now we ask you, brothers, this is talking about church leaders, Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and, what's the word? And lead you in the Lord, right? So there are people who are leaders in the Lord. And look, so, and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work, right? It's work to be a leader. Be at peace among yourselves. So for those of you who are here in this room and you are Christian leaders, Like I'm aware there are several people in this room, you are Christian leaders and I have two applications that I wanna give to you. The first application for Christian leaders is this. Christian leaders are not to be like the leaders of this world. This is really important to get. Christian leaders are not to be like the leaders of this world. Be sure to guard against becoming a tyrant. We as Christians cannot look to the way that the world does leadership and go, okay, I guess that's what I'm supposed to be doing. No, there's a whole nother way. Christian leaders are not to be like the leaders of this world. And the reason why you need to guard against becoming a tyrant is Jesus said so. Look at Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 25. Jesus called them over and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You see something similar in 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to start reading from there. This passage is about um, church leaders. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 2. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly. Now look at this next part not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherds appear, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Christian leaders, make sure you are not a tyrant. And when necessary, and I assume these days are gonna come, when necessary, repent of domineering. It is unchristlike. it is not God's will for your life. 
Now, the second application that I have for leaders, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and admit, I don't exactly have a verse for it, okay? So if you want to disregard this one after I explain it and go, oh, I don't think that's true. He didn't have a verse. Okay, fine. Feel free. But here's the second, this is the second um, exhortation I want to give to you as leaders. I think it's important. Ready for it? Be ready for people to be mad at you. Okay, if you are a Christian leader, be ready for people to be mad at you. I think that that comes with leading. The leadership gifting is a weird gifting. <laughs> at least it seems to me, from my perspective, it's like this. If your gift is teaching and you are faithful in it and you do it well, typically people like you more. If your gift is showing mercy and you're faithful in it and you do it well, people like you more. But if your gift is leading, for some reason, leading is one of those functions that if you're faithful and you do it well, some people will get angry at you. Why is that? Here's my theory. Leadership is, and I think this is what I'm about to say is a fair definition. Leadership is getting people to do stuff that they wouldn't have done before you came along. Fair enough? All right, I mean, I realize that's not the dictionary definition, but I think, that that's the, I think that's correct. Leadership is the act of getting people to do stuff that they wouldn't have done before you came along. In other words, if they would have done it anyway, you didn't lead them to do it, right? But here's the trick. People don't naturally want to do things that they wouldn't have done before you came along. If they wanted to do those things, they would have been doing them when you showed up, right? So it seems to me a lot of times leading is trying to get people to do stuff they don't want to do. But here's the secret. People don't want to do stuff they don't want to do, right? Are you following the logic? Leaders often have to hold people accountable. They have to remove unqualified people from their positions. They have to enforce rules. They have to enforce policies. They have to make unpopular decisions. And this makes them a target. Now, I said I didn't have a verse for this. Um, and I guess that's true And since I don't have a verse that directly says this. But I do have two verses I'm going to read. And, I'm, and as I read these two verses, I want you to listen to them and just see if you can hear hints of what I'm saying. Like the stuff that I'm saying right now, is it really not from the Bible or is it kind of implied in these two verses? You be the judge. Well, here it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. I read it earlier. Now we ask brothers, we ask you brothers to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and what? Admonish you. Oh, now that's interesting. The people who were the leaders of the Thessalonians were admonishing them. Doesn't that imply that they were trying to get them to do stuff that they wouldn't ordinarily do? They were trying to get them to do stuff they didn't want to do? And then right after that, they lead you and admonish you. Now look at the command. And to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Doesn't it seem maybe implied that there would have been some Thessalonians who did not regard them very highly in love because they were being admonished by them? Maybe there was a lack of peace because it's like they're trying to get us to do stuff we don't want to do? Could it be implied in this passage? Eh, it seems like it. Let me show you one other one that I think does the same thing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with what? Grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Doesn't the command to, to submit in such a way that doesn't cause grief, <laughs> doesn't that seem to hint at the idea that maybe some people were causing grief for the people who are watching over their souls? So I say, so in principle, this is what I'm trying to say to you. Those of you who are leaders, 
be ready for people to be mad at you. As best as I can tell, that's normal. And by the way, this this idea and the practice of it is so widespread. I want to be really clear on this because this applies to so many people in this room. Okay? Parenting is leadership. Did you know that? Okay, so this applies to a bunch of you. Some of you are like, I'll just wait until he gets the next gift. I'm not a leader. If you got kids, you're you're in it. Too bad, okay? (laughs) Parenting is leadership. And if you parent faithfully and well, there will be times that your children will not like you. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong, okay? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, next, next gift, showing mercy. So, serving, giving, leading, showing mercy. For this one, I want to take you to Luke. Um, it's chapter 10. I'm going to read to you verses 30 through 37. This is actually one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. Okay, Luke 10, starting in verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, and if you're wondering what the question was, the question just before this was, who is my neighbor? Okay, so in, res- in response to who is my neighbor, Jesus told this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at, that, at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And then Jesus said this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And look what they said back. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. What an incredible example of showing mercy. Now, as I said about the other giftings, this function is required of all Christians. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not a story that Jesus told when he gathered all the people who are good at showing mercy together and told them that this is what they are supposed to do. No, the context is Jesus was talking to like the crowd, the people. He, he says, he said, um, just before this, he had said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then some smart Alex said, who's my neighbor? Okay, trying to get out of loving everybody. And so then he gave this story. But the point is, this story is not for just some special people to be like the Good Samaritan. He was saying, love your neighbor, and then gave this story. So obviously this showing mercy, this command is for everyone, not just for people with the gift of mercy. However, I assume, based on the way Romans 12.8 is written, okay, there's an implication that some of you in this room will be extra good at this. And so those of you who are extra good at this, I think you should be aware of that and do it quite a bit for Jesus. Now, as far as, as far as an exhortation goes, I will point out to you that Romans 12.8 says that you are to exercise this gift with cheerfulness. So if you notice, it says exhorting, exhortation, giving with generosity. But look how it ends. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. That's a word that means not begrudgingly. It means willingly. And it seems important in this passage that compassion be shown with the right attitude, right? It's like, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do it. Have you ever heard of compassion fatigue? Yeah, it's a phrase that people um, use. It's not even a particularly Christian phrase. Like if you go and just Google the phrase compassion fatigue, you'll find all kinds of psychology websites about it. But here's a simple explanation as best as I understand it. The word compassion 
Um, if you go back, it's an old word um, in the English language, and it means to suffer with. <clears throat> like, I think that's what it originally meant when they invented the word. Compassion means to suffer with. The word passion, like hundreds of years ago in English, used to mean um, suffering. We don't use the word passion that way anymore. Although sometimes you see it in things like, like the title of that movie, The Passion of the Christ. It's not about Jesus's feelings, right? It was, it was about the suffering of the Christ. That's what that meant. So the word passion used to mean suffering. And then at some point, back in the day, whenever they used the word passion that way, they took C-O-M and put it in front of it because that meant to suffer with, to suffer alongside of. It seems to me that if you live your life, at least at times, taking on the suffering of others and saying like, I'm gonna go through this with you. If you live your life taking on the suffering of others, of course, that will eventually wear you out. And so you have to watch out for that. In the words of 1 Peter 4, if anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides. It seems that we must find ways to minister God's mercy out of his strength, rather than only ministering our own mercy out of our own resources. And that's it. We covered the four gifts. And between last week and this week, we covered the seven that are mentioned in Romans chapter 12. So as we close, I'd like to point out just one last thing. Just one more passage, one last thing I want to say, and it's because I think, it, I think we got to say it after we say all this. When we have a week like today where we talk a lot about being good Christians, okay? I mean, there was a lot in this sermon about being a good Christian, right? And the way you got to be a good Christian is you got to show mercy and you got to share and you got to serve, right? And I think in the context of all that, it's important that I remind people that we are not saved by our works. <laughs> and yet we are saved for good works, and so whenever we do a sermon that's a lot about here's how you live your life and make sure you're well-behaved, I think it's important for you to remember you are not saved by your works, but you are saved for good works. And I'll show you how, how that, what that looks like in Ephesians chapter two. This will be the last passage we do. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. I'm gonna read it now. It says, for you are saved by grace. That's important. The salvation that you have from God is by grace, not by works, not by your behavior, not by you were so holy and you obey all the rules and then God looked down and went, whoa, look at her. She is so good compared to everyone else. I gotta save her. I'm gonna forgive her of her sin. Him too, him too, not him, no, but him, yes, right? No, you are saved by grace through faith. What kind of faith? Well, if you read the whole chapter that's found here in Ephesians, you would say, this is faith in Jesus Christ. This is, I'm believing Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. My sins are bad. My sins are so bad. There's no way I could be right with God. But Jesus died on the cross for my sins, in my place. And he rose again. He rose again and he offers eternal life because it's something he has to offer. So you are saved by grace through faith in the gospel, through faith in Jesus. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And then look at the next verse. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. My desire for us as a congregation, and I hope your desire for us as a congregation, is that we would be people who do good works with our gifts, not to gain God's acceptance, but because we trust in him and we have received his grace, and in reaction to his grace, we do the works that he prepared for us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. 
There are so many people in this room, as best as I can tell, that they know you, they trust in you, and you've given them grace as a gift. You've forgiven of them their, of their sins. Thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for doing that for many of us. Thank you for your grace. If it were up to us to work for it, we never would be able to. So we thank you for that. And then we thank you for the, the I guess it's a different kind of grace, but the grace where you give us these, these gifts that we also don't deserve in order to serve you. These things you've prepared for us ahead of time. And so I assume that there are people in this room who have the gift of teaching and people have the gift of serving. Some people have the gift of giving or showing mercy or leading or exhorting. And so I just pray that you would shape us to be the kind of people, the kind of congregation, the kind of body that you want us to be as we each do our function. We thank you for your gifts. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.